I thought we'd begin um, with a few remarks from each of our panelists, uh, since this is a, moon a discussion about uh, moonshots for access, that we'd start with just an introduction and, um, from each of the panelists, uh, telling us a little bit about the system and the people that they serve, and um, to get a lay of the land, maybe uh, where they see sort of the primary, the primary barriers to access. So I will start with Ms. Hausman. Thank you all for being here. It's really inspiring to spend time uh, with all of you in a very common shared purpose, which is to transform health across our globe. I have the fortune of and um, privilege of serving as a CEO of Children's Hospital Colorado. Children's hospitals are unique in the country, increasingly unique. There are only about 34 freestanding children's hospitals left. There are many large systems that take care of children um, that really um, do all work together. But one of the things that we have discovered in Colorado is we are serving kids from all 50 states. We are serving kids from 27 countries. And increasingly, uh, we are becoming the um, destination for some of the most complicated, medically complex children. We're the number one provider for the Department of Defense right now and military families who have children with medical complexities. And as you begin to look at that, you begin to really change the um, nature of some of the higher end care that you're providing when children are traveling across the globe, across the country for care. That is absolutely um, how we think about access for some of our more acute services, which is a real key part of how we want to think about transformation. But also, we serve seven states that surround us that don't have a children's hospital for some of the lower end acuity work. So we really, um, in our organization, think about this across what this means for children, whether it's um, some of the more minor, less complex things that we would love to get out of a health system as we've traditionally known it and figure out how to get it into homes, get it into schools, and we can talk more about that, um, where it's much more right care, right time, right place, right provider, right experience. Um, and so that's a really big part of who we are, not just serving Colorado, but seven states. Um, that need that in addition to the super complicated um, care that's needed um, in some of those higher end specialties. Well, some of the same themes. I'd like to first thank Startup Health for organizing this, and it's a pleasure to be on the panel with both of you. Um, we're about a $7.5 billion uh, top line revenue organization. About 30% of our patients are Medicaid, 30% are Medicare, and 40% are commercially insured. Um, we view um, still, after this current election, that the triple aim has is, is got to be our goal, and that's access, quality, and cost. And we feel very strongly that access is a key issue. And if we're going to talk about inequality in the country, uh, that access becomes a, uh, a critical piece of, of information. There are a number of parallels between uh, underserved urban populations that we serve um, in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and underserved rural populations. Uh, there are broadband access issues, there are access to primary care issues, there's access to urgent care. There are a range of issues that we feel uh, we need uh, to extend beyond the four walls of the hospital and what we do, and so we are diligently trying to apply expansion of primary care, expansion of school-based clinics, the expansion of our physical footprint, but that's got to be co-joined with an expansion of the digital footprint. Otherwise, I don't think the access problems can be solved. 
Well, thank you very much uh, for time to talk to you a little bit. Uh, let me just speak a little bit about access. Um, access in Washington means insurance. Access when you're sick are, uh, means actually getting to see a provider. Uh, so we have uh, radically changed our approach to access. We feel that access ought to be anytime, anywhere. Um, and uh, we started with this uh, a number of years ago. Uh, we now have uh, emergency rooms uh, which uh, see people uh, with an average of uh, 11 minutes waiting time. Then we uh, became concerned uh, when patients uh, needed to be seen and couldn't, so we went to same-day appointments. Uh, we know everybody who calls up, we say, uh, would you like to be seen today? We saw 1.3 million same-day appointments last year, and 98% of the people who asked for one got one. Uh, we've also uh, gone to uh, virtual visits um, and uh, offer uh, people to get it on their cell phones, Skype, however. You can click in an appointment, you can walk in an appointment with an increasing number of, uh, of facilities where you can simply walk in with no appointment. Um, and uh, we think that uh, you ought to be able to see people anytime that you uh, want to see people. Uh, and quite frankly, the, um, the same day appointment issue started from a single case of a patient who uh, wanted to make an appointment with urology and he was given an appointment in urology uh, in two weeks. It turned out he was in acute urinary retention. Our lesson from that was that you have to ask the patient if they want to be seen or not. And so our objective is to make uh, access universally uh, uh, available to our patients. So each of you talked right. about um, the ability to actually, you know, get to see somebody. In your case, you're you're covering multiple states. You talked about the availability of providers. You talked about sort of can somebody get in to see a clinician in a timely manner. And so, um, just to kind of like narrow it down to that one sliver, um, I'd be interested in ways in which you might be trying to apply technology to address some of those, uh, some of those uh, sort of accessibility issues. So we'll set aside for just a moment, set aside the question of whether or not it's affordable. We'll get to that next. <laughs> um, but in terms of just being able to like get to the person that has the knowledge that you need. Um, let, me, so let me start and I'll give you one experiment that we've had. We've seen uh, emergency department visits uh, grow by about 7 to 10% per year, even after the passage of the Affordable Care Act. It's supposed to go down, have gone up. Uh, time to provider was going up. We made a decision that we were going to have uh, uh, virtual visits in our emergency room, kiosk visits. So we're able to do, I think we've done over a thousand such visits. Um, it lowers the total amount of time in the emergency room from about two hours to about uh, 30 minutes. Uh, we can cover two or three emergency rooms simultaneously and we take people who have uh, grade four or five conditions, uh, those conditions that are not deemed to be in immediate need for uh, 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 acute physical care. So it's that type of combination of things that I think can start to uh, deal with the issues of access in the emergency setting as, as but one example. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing is, is similarly, we've gone to what's called split flow. So if you come in with a sprained ankle, you don't have to take your clothes off, get on a stretcher, and go into a room. Uh, you're uh, put to, uh, to be seen as an outpatient. 
and that leaves the opportunity to move people through faster, and we've used a lot of physician extenders. Um, we have, of course, our system, we have about 1,500 uh, nurse clinicians and PAs across our uh, entire system, and it's going to be more and more of that all the time. One of the things we're doing, there's a, a really um, acute shortage of mental health providers in the uh, pediatric space. And so we're using a lot of the telehealth technologies to try to connect to emergency departments across the region so that they have immediate access to pediatric mental health providers, either psychologists or psychiatrists, so they, we can help them do a triage and assessment in their home community ED, manage that situation if, if appropriate, or do the appropriate referral. Um, but parents are, are really scared out there and providers are nervous. Um, and so that has been a really important um, telehealth utilization of a subspecialty that's in really rare demand. That's a terrific example, and we do the same thing. I think that you'd be surprised to know there are less than 10,000 child and adolescent psychiatrists in the country. Not in the state of California, in the country. So um, this is an acute need, and many of the psychiatrists that do child and adolescent psychiatry are seeing outpatients. So it's a terrific example. And telepsychiatry is but one type of on-demand service that I think is truly beneficial and truly necessary. I, you know, the other interesting thing is the use of new technology around stroke. Um, and uh, we're now increasingly trying to take the care to the patient. And in fact, uh, we've put together a CAT scanner within an ambulance. And so when someone calls in uh, to, to say they have a, a symptoms of a stroke, we dispatch this ambulance, they do the CAT scan in the driveway, they can start um, the thrombolytic therapy right there in the driveway. And we've had some amazing saves uh, of people. Uh, so they do the CAT scan, it's read distantly um, back at the uh, main campus, and then they make the decision as whether they're gonna go ahead with it. So increasingly, we're trying to move the technology to uh, the patients, whether it's monitoring them uh, for chronic disease uh, virtually, or whether it's taking the advanced technology to them, or whether it's having home visits by uh, physicians to begin to look at uh, people with chronic disease and keep them out of the hospital. So we've been talking a little bit about sort of inside of the hospital. I'm interested in the ways in which you may be trying to increase access outside of the hospital. Um, you know, you, you all operate hospitals, but increasingly uh, hospitals operate outside of the four walls of acute care. And so um, where do you see opportunities to uh, increase access um, outside of the acute care setting? Well, we haven't mentioned the, 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 the four-letter word that um, it comes to everybody's mind, which is cost. And so you know, part of this discussion around uh, virtual visits, and for certainly all of you who are entrepreneurs, is how can we do things better, faster, and cheaper? What are the solution sets that will improve productivity in an industry that can deliver terrific results but has got relatively low productivity? Same number of nurses are taking care of the patients in terms of ratios that they were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. When you get to the outpatient setting and you're trying to provide even more preventive care, the ability to prevent somebody from, from coming into the hospital, um, these are very expensive models of care. We've all done them 
uh, and you can show pretty dramatic results in reducing emergency room visits, reducing emergency room visits for childhood asthma, and so on and so forth. Uh, but they're very costly uh, because the models are not uh, not meant to be uh, reimbursed at a, at a reasonable rate. And so you have to rely on things that can really extend you and leverage your personnel. One of the things we're looking at, um, and it's just on the begin, uh, beginning journey, is partnerships with schools. So children spend a large portion of their day in the school setting. The school setting is becoming overwhelmed with behavioral issues in addition to the educational demands. And so we've adopted a couple of schools in our local neighborhood to start some very um, important pilot work to try to figure out how that becomes a new care setting for us. Um, whether we're actually bringing our personnel into the school setting in a different way and redefining the old school nurse, as we all remember, um, or is there how we leverage technology to do that and how we take all the rich inputs about that child, the social dimensions, behavioral dimensions, as well as the physical dimensions of that child into a more comprehensive look at the health and well-being of that child and in, capture that information in a more integrated, connected way so that we see a whole picture of a child. And then we can target strategies with not just the schools but with parents in a different way because parents also relate to the school differently than they relate to the healthcare system. So that's on our, our journey coming up. Well, as, as Steve uh, points out, you know, one of the things we have to talk about is cost. Um, and there's really only two ways we're going to reduce costs. We can have a more efficient healthcare delivery system for the sick, or we can keep people well. And there has probably not been enough emphasis on keeping people well. Uh, and one of the things that we've, we've, we've gone to the schools the same way that uh, both uh, my colleagues have, but uh, we've gone one step farther and we've found that we can reach an awful lot of people through the churches. Uh, and we've put together a major program uh, with the churches in terms of uh, weight reduction um, and across all of Cleveland and we've had uh, enormous uh, success with that uh, reaching out to, uh, across this entire community which has really been very gratifying. When we talk about access and uh, the ways in which uh, the cost of care can uh, limit access, there are a couple things that uh, for me come to mind. One is, as you talked about it, the cost of the system itself. Um, and, and the other is um, just the degree to which the people who seek and receive care and pay for it have the information they need to make uh, the decisions like a, uh, the decisions that, uh, I'm, the word escaped me, um, to make sort of like to essentially comparison Why? shop. Yeah, like if I, you know, if I want to, like I recently went to the dermatologist, right? So um, I went and tried to find a little information both on uh, what it would cost and the relative quality of the dermatologists. It's not as, it's not easy. And so let's start with um, ways in which your organizations are trying to reduce your own costs, um, the cost of the cost of delivery. Um, I'd be interested in whether or not you're using um, uh, data warehouse, you know, new data uh, that you're sort of collecting through various sources to try to identify uh, what's efficient, uh, 
who are the most efficient providers, um, any other sort of internal engineering that you're doing to try to address um, your operational costs? Would you like to start? Yeah, uh, I think that we recognize that on an $8 billion organization, we probably need to take out about $1.5 billion worth of cost over a five-year period of time. So far, in about uh, two and a half years, we've taken out $700 million worth of our cost, and we've done it every way that you can imagine. Um, but ultimately, it's going to require that uh, we change the way we deliver care. Um, one of the, we've done several things. Virtual visits is one of them, uh, which uh, clearly has an opportunity to do that. This, one of the other ones we've done is group visits, uh, where uh, 12 people with the same diagnosis are seen at once. Uh, if you're diabetic, you get your diabetic instructions as a group. Interestingly, uh, people like it. It's like group therapy. They realize that they're not the only one that's got this problem, and they they share the experience, and it's really uh, very satisfying for them and obviously efficient. Uh, but ultimately, we have got to change the, the, the care that we deliver to uh, how we deliver care, and one of the ways it's going to do it is going to by having more and more physicians' assistants and PAs and have everybody uh, practicing at the top of their license. Um, and I, I would say that this is something that we've been doing now for at least 40 years um, and uh, have found it tremendously satisfying for the patients. They get better, they get great care, and certainly it, it elevates the physicians so they're not doing uh, work that they're, uh, could be better done by somebody else. And this is going to go on across the entire system because we have a shortage of almost 100,000 doctors across the, the country, and we've got, the only way we're going to supplement those is by a, additional individuals, uh, technicians, et cetera, who are going to pick up the pace and, and fill in those things. Major different ways, but also you have to look at everything. There's no sacred cows. Um, and we have uh, closed services, we consolidated services. One of the things that I would say is Ultimately, uh, healthcare is uh, currently in the United States a cottage industry, uh, and uh, some and like every other industry in the United States, it has to consolidate. Um, and I hope that the new administration talks to the Justice Department a little bit about allowing us to do that, because clearly that is another way we can drive the efficiency of the healthcare system. I agree totally with uh, Dr. Cosgrove. I think let me take it from a, a somewhat different perspective. 20% of the patients are driving 80% of the cost. So point number one is you've got to deal with the very high cost patients and that requires a lot of coordinated care. We've got to put as a country and individually much more resource into mental health because if you add a mental health substance comorbidity to any diagnosis, it doubles or triples the cost uh, uh, of, of caring for that patient. So. If you want to wring cost out of the system, deal with the 20%, deal a lot with um, some of the uh, mental health issues. The other thing that we're going to have to recognize in taking cost out is we have to deal with vulnerable populations. Uh, and believe it or not, the urban and rural vulnerable populations are not that different in terms of what they need. Um, finally, what I would suggest is that high quality takes cost out of the system. It avoids redundancy, uh, you avoid complications, um, and to follow up on Dr. Cosgrove's point, I think that 
um, consolidation appropriate with competition, uh, but also developing standards of care, which he has certainly been a leader in, you both have, um, becomes critically important in terms of bringing cost out of the system. Reducing variation, standardizing care requires um, a degree of industry consolidation that we've not yet had. Yeah, I won't repeat because those are um, critical things that I think a lot of healthcare leaders are really needing to do to continue to focus on costs. In pediatrics, 6% of the kids drive 40% of the costs. And so it's a sort of exacerbated issue of we have a target population we know we need to focus on and we can really laser focus creative, innovative strategies around managing the care of those vulnerable populations and have a really big impact when we do that. You started down a path that I just want to pick up is transparency um, in data systems. And I think these are two really important things we need to be thinking about in the health industry. Transparency is essential. We cannot improve ourselves if we're not honest about how we're performing. You cannot make good choices as a consumer if you don't know what is truly the performance of the choices that you're making either between providers or health systems and the experience, and so I think we all in the industry have to just keep going towards bringing transparency both in quality outcomes and cost data. And then data systems, I don't know about you, but right now we spend a lot of money in data, but we're not yielding a benefit. It's not dropping cost, it's actually increasing cost. And so I think how we work with smart data systems where they're not just repositories, but they're actually serving us in, in true analytics and informatics that we can act on, I think is, is something the healthcare industry is still in need of some innovation on. But I'd like yeah. your thoughts. Yeah, let me just, just add on to that. You know, we uh, started a number of years ago a company called Explorus. And Explorus uh, collected uh, 50 million patient records. Uh, and recently it was sold to IBM as Grist for Watson. Uh, and IBM is building uh, on our campus uh, a Watson uh, healthcare uh, building uh, that we think is going to be essential. As you look at it, the explosion in knowledge that's going on in healthcare is something that's absolutely overwhelming. By 2020, the total amount of knowledge in healthcare will double every 73 days. Right now, there are 800,000 journal articles published a year. There are 5,600 journals uh, publishing those. No one is going to be able to keep up with those. So we are actively uh, engaging Watson to begin to deal with this explosion in knowledge uh, that we're having, not just in terms of uh, mining it, but also uh, helping physicians make good decisions and diagnosis, particularly when you begin to have genomics bringing massive amounts of information that we're going to have to deal with as part of the both diagnosis and the treatment of our patients. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I think artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to be critical as we move forward. Uh, but for, for those of you who read uh, Robert Gordon's book on uh, productivity, we have hit a a productivity slowdown in the country and healthcare is a big part of the GDP and our productivity in healthcare is not what it needs to be. Uh, and to Jenna's point, the productivity associated with information technology has not yielded promise at this point. In fact, uh, currently information technology, especially the electronic records, makes our clinicians less productive, not more productive. There may be other benefits, but productivity is not one of them. 
So one of the key things I think for us uh, is to start to accelerate productivity enhancements. AI may do that, machine learning may do that. Um, enhancements to the way that we care for patients. Um, we still have you know, 60, 70 year old ways of caring for patients in terms of rounding, in terms of communication, in terms of handoffs. So there's a, a wealth of opportunity overlaid on top of the EHR for companies to make a big difference in terms of the productivity of the healthcare space. Could I just, just add one more plug here, and this is not gonna be very sexy or very high tech, but there, there are two things that account for enormous amounts of the cost in healthcare. That's smoking and obesity. Obesity right now accounts for 10% of the healthcare costs in the United States, and smoking is the number one cause, preventable cause of cancer. Um, and we still have 22% of the people in the United States smoking, and it's not going down. Um, and, you know, we made a fairly bold move. We stopped hiring smokers. Uh, and the reason we stopped hiring, hiring smokers is because we felt that it was important to send a message about what a healthcare organization stood for. Um, and uh, it is it, sort of an amusing sidelight of this. <clears throat> Everybody was really concerned when we went into this because the highest incidence of smoking in a hospital is around respiratory therapists. <laughs> just, just saying. And, you know, we, we were worried that we weren't going to be able to have respiratory therapists anymore. Well, turns out that uh, there are a bunch of respiratory therapists who don't like smoking. So we're, we've been okay. So I, I do want to come back to this point about transparency. Could each of you describe what it is that you do, your organizations do, to put forward cost and quality information to individual consumers? So. Um, I don't know if it's through the contracts, contracting with um, health plans that put together their own sort of accessible information for health plan members, or if it's um, information that's provided to employers, or if it's information that's on your website. Um, I'm just kind of interested in where you're at. And um, yeah, we'll start there. Okay, um, you know, I think it's much easier to talk about quality than it is uh, about cost. And uh, what we did with quality is we started uh, a decade ago and asked each one of our departments to uh, put an outcomes book together. And the outcomes book essentially gives you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what we've done last year. And we did it for two reasons. The first reason was every time we looked at it, we find something that we could do better. Uh, it's like looking in the mirror. Uh, and it was good for us in improving our quality. The second reason is we are a community resource and we owe it to the community to tell us what, the, what their, our quality is. And so we've been very transparent. You can get it in a paperback form, you can go to the website and get it, but it's all out there, done, uh, upgraded on an annual basis. Now to start with, uh, some of it was not very sophisticated, but each year it gets a little more sophisticated as we go forward uh, with this. The cost is really difficult. We have over 100 contracts with different uh, providers. Uh, and to try and figure out um, what we are charging for a colonoscopy in one place or another uh, with one contract or another, it gets to be enormously complicated. And uh, there are now companies that have come along that are offering this more and more, are pushing transparency. Uh, Castlelite was one of the leaders uh, in this. Um, but it is not yet generally available across the country. 
Yeah, I would also point out, and, and this is just the conundrum that as a country we find ourselves in, uh, is that Medicare and Medicaid do not pay cost. So you're dealing with, let's say, 70 cents, 75 cents on the dollar for Medicare and Medicaid. That's got to be offset by $1.20 or $1.30 on commercial contracts. And so one of the issues that we're going to face is if you just take care of Medicare and Medicaid patients, it's difficult to make it. And so the safety net hospitals in the country are going to have issues. It's part of the issue that you're seeing in inner city hospitals, certainly in my city, uh, and it is a big conundrum. So to the earlier point that was made, you know, you have 70 plus million people in the country on Medicaid. Medicaid policy becomes extremely important uh, in terms of how the country progresses. Um, and if Medicaid gets cut back, that will put a further cost burden on those patients that are commercially insured. And so this issue of transparency around what price are you paying, A, depends on the contracts, but B, it also depends on what government policy is for Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement. And if we're convinced as a country that we're spending too much and not getting enough for it, um, then the issue uh, really has to become uh, exactly how we're going to move forward to improve the quality of care and the quality of the outcomes. You almost teed me up for a soapbox on Medicaid, but I won't go there. About half of um, most children's hospitals' uh, revenue comes from Medicaid as a source. So we are tracking that with extreme interest and hopefully influence in that voice. I'll just give an example about preventable harm. Hospitals are not always the safest place to be, and there are many um, bad outcomes that can happen with things that could be prevented. So we took very, very seriously six years ago, but we have been reducing the number of children that have been harmed. Um, and we don't just, we haven't just reduced it by over 50%. We put faces and names, not just statistics. We publicize it all over um, our organization and on our website. And every family who admits a child into our organization, we talk to them about what could happen and how we need that parent to be part of the care team to help us prevent unintentional harm um, while their child is in, the, um, in our care. And that it was a very difficult decision to make because the lawyers hated it, the risk managers hated it, but we had to go there. We had to be bold and say, no, in order to drive to zero preventable harm, we have to be honest about how much harm is having, happening in our organization and talk about that, not just with ourselves, but truly with our patients and families. I'm gonna open it up for questions. Oh. We are going to open it up for questions now. <laughs> I apologize. I was looking in the wrong spot for the timing. So we've got mic runners. If anybody's got questions for our panel. Well, thank you for all the things that you share. Uh, very interesting. You, you mentioned that you're offering new channels for people to access healthcare. The first reaction to facilitate this access. But uh, in my opinion, that leads to another challenge, which is how do you help people make the right decision on what is the right channel to access healthcare, so that uh, it can be provided in a in a in a cost-efficient way, right? So it's, you you mentioned uh, same thing appointments, you mentioned uh, uh, teleconsultations, this kind of thing. So every time people have more and more options, but how do we support them to make the right decision so that they make the the most efficient decision on how to access healthcare? Healthcare. I think increasingly you have to include the patient in the discussion, uh, and that requires uh, giving them the options uh, and having a meaningful discussion with the patient up front about what the options are, be it 
uh, whether you're going to coming to the end of life issues. Uh, I, that that is a very important issue that we haven't touched on is the end of life, uh, and the discussions that have to go on amongst families, providers, patients, um, and there is another issue about a very difficult one about the economics, the social uh, aspects of it, the emotional aspects of it, all are incredibly important and also require very straightforward discussions. Um, and uh, if you, there is guilt in everybody who deals with the end of life. And you have to put that out there and have an open discussion about it. I think it's, that is one of the tough decisions that you have to make, probably the toughest. But it, transparency helps it, and candor helps it enormously. Thank you. Um, I've been a healthcare provider most of my career, and and obviously it would be very hard to find a healthcare provider like Dr. Cosgrove who would argue against uh, reducing costs and improving quality. But in terms of reducing costs, one of the factors that I know you all know about, but you may want to comment to the audience, relates to how you reward institutions, healthcare providers, and healthcare systems in order to allow them to reduce costs and improve quality given the perverse fee-for-service production-based incentives that even the government puts in in terms of how we're reimbursed. And, and for example, it's sad to see now in Medicare, for example, that primary care physicians probably going to opt out of Medicare uh, at the expense of our seniors and disadvantaged people because of the way the system works. And as thought leaders, I was wondering how you deal with this perverse way we're reimbursed to take care of our patients in terms of this fee-for-service model, either as an institution or a provider. Yeah, uh, the, the question was, with fee-for-service um, having perverse incentives to see more and more people, um, how do we as providers look at it? Because in part, we depend on revenues from the volumes that, um, that come into us. I've sort of looked at it, and, and as, our, as an institution, we've looked at it that um, we're a not-for-profit institution that exists for the public good. Uh, one of the public goods is to reduce the cost of health care. Therefore, we are going to reduce utilization. We are going to take unnecessary utilization out of the system as much as we can. Um, and I believe that with organizations that are up here, uh, that the remaining utilization will come to places like us that people can trust and people can rely on. And if they can't trust and rely on us, then they will go somewhere else. To the point about transparency, you have to show what you can do and show what the outcomes are. So um, I admit that there are perverse incentives for fee-for-service. There's, there's no system that has been created that doesn't have perverse incentives associated with it if you take it to a certain extreme. But I think that as healthcare providers, we've got to help the country in its effort to reduce costs, and that means taking out utilization. Yeah, let me just uh, say one more word about that. Uh, first of all, the way we're organized, we all are uh, salaried, um, and uh, there's no financial incentives for us, uh, just a straight salary. Uh, we have one-year contracts and annual professional reviews. I've had 42 one-year contracts and looking for 43. 
I wish we had more time, but that's it. Um, thank you very much for the excellent questions and thanks to our panelists. Thank you.